never give up. I never give up. I never give up. Welcome back to Neff Inspiration, my show on YouTube and as a podcast with me, your host, Stefan Neff. Today is a wonderful day because I have again the honor of talking to Mukesh Kapila. Mukesh is a man who has spent his life uh, in the humanitarian world and has been linked with uh, any number of uh, international uh, institutions, including the WHO, including many other uh, uh, institutions that try to make this world truly a better place. And he has done so for decades. And therefore, he is in such a prime uh, situation now, in such a prime uh, place to, to talk to me about what is happening right now, i.e. the war in Palestine, the war in between Hamas specifically and Israel, and of course, all the factors and factions that are coming from all sides and are, are fomenting uh, shit stirring in there, because it's not just two groups of people, it's so much more. So Mukesh, thank you so much for bringing for coming to my show and bringing your unique lens of from the humanitarian community and also the WHO um, to look at the current events in uh, the Middle East. Thank you. Good to see you again, Stefan. <laughs> Thank you. My goodness. I mean, it is uh, Hamas has has invaded or has started the, the war, but this is nothing new. Um, Hamas um, has been around since the 70s. And in, in fact, Hamas was actually at one stage uh, supported by the, by Israel um, because they saw Hamas as the lesser evil compared with PLO and compared with Fatah and other uh, uh, organizations, other maybe terrorist groups, if you want to call them like that. Um, so it's, it's an incredibly confused picture there, isn't it? Um, were you surprised when Hamas took that action of invading uh, Israel? It is a complex situation, but on the other hand, I think uh, uh, it has been complexified. Um, but to answer yeah. your question more directly about was I surprised, uh, I was surprised that the, uh, the, the Hamas assault on Israel took the form it did. It was far more sophisticated and mm. far more uh, uh, organized uh, than uh, I think uh, those guys have been given credit for in the past. And, and that, of course, took uh, Israel by surprise. Israel mm. has become complacent in recent years, admittedly, but nevertheless, it was a surprise both to Israel and to the rest of the rest of the world. Hmm. So I think that the shock aspect of that has a lot to do with uh, the subsequent uh, reaction. It's what happens when uh, a sudden trauma strikes someone and the way they react then is very different from uh, when uh, perhaps there is a buildup and uh, the uh, victim or the other side or the opponent has a time to even prepare and calibrate the response. But this was uh, such a psychological and physical shock. And that, I think, set the train uh, in motion in terms of all the events that are so um, uh, familiar to us in the last few days. And that is, that is a very good point you're making there. Um, 
Netanyahu and and other um, uh, the other leaders of Israel have been trying to manage somehow Hamas, manage the problem rather than eradicate it in the past. Now, when I see when I say manage, um, if you had a closer look into Gaza uh, or uh, some of the other parts of the occupied uh, lands, there you've got you know, uh, uh, unemployment of 50%. Um, you have got people just living on the bare minimum of what can we have. There's no employment. There's no no proper education. There's this, If you read about the, the, the people who have become, for example, Hamas leaders, um, some of them were students, for example, one of the, the first big bomb makers in, in Hamas was actually an engineering student. And he was he wanted to go overseas. He wanted to study overseas. And Israel said, no, nah, no. Nah. I don't allow you that. And he got so pissed off that he actually uh, used his his engineering knowledge um, and became a bomb maker. Um, so it's those kind of situations where really we have to say, wow, did Israel not actually cause this attack on its own soil? Well, uh, this particular uh, attack was heinous. Mm-hmm. I think the nothing justifies it and uh, whatever just cause uh, palestine has and it does have a just cause um it kind of cancelled it uh, by the not palestine didn't cancel it but hamas cancelled it uh, on that uh, fateful uh, day uh, and uh, sullied what would be i think a just cause uh, but uh, going back to your point about poverty and uh, the deprivation of Palestine, absolutely. But it's more than that. It just reminds me of uh, a, a little, a few years ago, I was in Palestine uh, visiting the West Bank and uh, an Israeli friend uh, with an Israeli car with Israeli number plates uh, uh, took me across the border into Ramallah, into the West Bank. And uh, no problem, just cross the border. Uh, wandered around, had a cup of coffee, um, and saw what was going on, and uh, uh, drove back. Uh, I hadn't even realized we had crossed the border between Israel and the West Bank. Mm. So, and uh, so I was saying, what's all this fuss about? This <laughs> these Palestinians complaining, and then uh, I explained to me, and then I saw for myself the queue that was waiting. Uh, those uh, who were Palestinians, I was a foreigner. I was with an Israeli, mm. and uh, it, for me, it was absolutely no problem. But for the Palestinians who were queuing there, uh, old, young, uh, uh, people uh, coming into Israel to work, people going back, um, people with the little bundles of possessions, uh, with their identity cards, uh, on an extremely hot day. Mm. And the way the Israeli soldiers were treating them. And these were people of all ages, Mm. uh, pregnant mothers, uh, old uh, men and women, um, Mm. uh, people hobbling to and from hospital in Israel, Mm. um, you know, queuing in the dust and looked at with the, uh, as if they were alien objects by the Israeli security forces on the border and subjected to a degree of uh, really humiliation uh, for 
the privilege of uh, crossing that line. Now, uh, in a moment, I understood that it isn't just uh, poverty or uh, uh, economic deprivation. It is a humiliation that accompanies that kind of treatment mm. that, uh, honestly, if I was Palestinian, my blood would uh, would uh, boil uh, equally. And if you speak to, uh, to, to people uh, and you become sensitized and you talk to people's experiences and you realize that when you are carrying that sort of humiliation uh, uh, year after year, decade after year, decade, then it somehow penetrates your DNA. And uh, as I discovered, I was visiting a, a, a Palestinian camp in Lebanon, actually, um, and uh, there are many Palestinian refugees who have been there since 1948 in, in Lebanon and the many camps in and around Beirut and further. And I was visiting them with uh, the UN uh, Relief Works Organization, UNRWA, which is responsible for their uh, well-being. Uh, and uh, I met this young uh, um, lady uh, who was an occupational therapist, actually. Uh, originally, uh, originally, her grandfather came to uh, Lebanon in 1948. And she uh, thought herself as a refugee, and it kind of took me back because, in my experience, a refugee is a person who has flown, who has fled conflict, and and so on. And then, uh, and the the children. I never thought that the children, let alone their grandchildren, were uh, displaced, dispossessed, and refugees. So it's almost as if the act of dispossession is transmitted down the generations. And it's very important to understand, to understand that. It is not a generational thing, it's an intergenerational Absolutely. Uh, thing. And it, it really gets into your bones, uh, and uh, as I was saying, into your, into your genes. So when you combine all of that, you begin to understand that uh, this uh, is uh, the uh, psychological trauma that uh, simple political solutions will not necessarily overcome. Having said all of that, Hamas is no friend of Palestinians. And uh, from my talking to Palestinians, it's very clear that uh, uh, while many Palestinians uh, sympathize uh, with a struggle to gain their own uh, um, uh, self-determination, their independence, mm. if you wish, as a Palestine state, which has already been agreed mm. by, the, by the United Nations, uh, but uh, Hamas has got more complex agendas than that, uh, and it is in it is in the wider Islamic terrorist mindset. Uh, I don't think they care much about Palestine. What they care about is some other super, superhuman idea, to uh, akin to ISIS, akin to Islamic State, uh, to create something that is. Uh, much greater than the identity of individual uh, uh, states, even if they're Muslim uh, states. So uh, we should not make the mistake of confusing uh, Hamas with Palestine. Unfortunately, Good. unfortunately, that has happened in mm. Palestine. The confusion and uh, Israel as well, and uh, uh, that's why we are in the mess that we are in now. 
And it's lovely how you put that, because uh, indeed, um, Hamas is a group that that has fomented within the uh, the, the occupied uh, areas uh, by Israel, but uh, it is uh, by far uh, representative of the of the Palestinian. Palestinians, shall I say, or the Palestinian cause. Um, it is. It has been labeled a, um, a terrorist organization by a number of countries. Um, and I guess the truth lies in the pudding when you look at how Hamas has situated itself close to or within hospitals, within uh, places that are densely populated, uh, and very much therefore uh, accepting this human shield of, well, okay, they are dispensable. Um, uh, if we get attacked, well, uh, we can make um, a, a currency, we get currency from all the death that is inevitably occurring. That's exactly what we are seeing now. Hamas has forever used uh, ambulances um, to actually get their leaders around. So we we are seeing some very nasty behaviors that are not really in the interest of Palestinians. So I think that's 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 of uh, um, that states that very clearly. Well, unfortunately, one of the issues has been that, that uh, Gaza is extremely densely populated. It's one of the most densely densely populated spots on yeah. earth. Yeah. So once you get Hamas installed there, there aren't that many places that they can go. They, right. You know, there's no kind of vast lands, unoccupied lands. Mm. So they have infiltrated, uh, uh, you know, underground, right. uh, in, a built, in the built environment. And uh, uh, they are a classic illustration of the face of modern warfare. Mm. So we've seen... Uh, this, for example, in uh, Ukraine at the moment, where the Russians are bombing uh, Ukrainian uh, cities, mm. and we've seen it in many other conflicts around the world, because nobody actually fights over empty ground. Today's conflicts are highly urbanized. Mm. So when we combine the, uh, the Hamas mindset with the geographical setting where they are found, then you have the most toxic combination that you can possibly imagine. And when the rules of war were written, when uh, people thought of uh, uh, these matters in uh, in uh, easier times, perhaps um, I don't know whether easier or not really, but uh, <laughs> you know everything in the past is, was supposed to be better off. But people mm-hmm. say, but, uh, I don't think uh, people imagined the context in which we would be fighting today's wars: urban, mm-hmm. uh, high intensity. Uh, modern uh, weaponry of great uh, uh, killing power, and a combination of all of that, I think mm. we're, we are seeing the full expression of that now in Gaza. Mm. You were pointing earlier in one of your first sentences, you were pointing out the sophistication of Hamas uh, attacks. And uh, I, I, I agree uh, that sophistication is not some teenagers welding some rockets together somewhere underground this is very clearly um, has been financed and supported by other states and there is there's the suggestion that iran has been uh, very fundamental in supplying hamas and maybe other um, other groups uh, with weaponry um 
what is your take on that? I mean, is that really an, a conflict of Israel versus Hamas? Or are we not talking about a much wider conflict in the Middle East, where uh, in the shadows, other people are pulling the strings? Other states, shall well, I say? I think uh, it's certain that Hamas has been uh, financed from outside. And that includes uh, Iran. And uh, uh, over the decades, they've built up uh, uh, both the sophisticated technical knowledge, as well as the uh, uh, the uh, the means, capital, mm. if you wish, to construct their underground tunnels and all mm. the other command and control arrangements, communication yeah. systems, and and such like. And all that takes, by the way, a, a lot of uh, money. So mm. that's so now. Uh, your point about uh, is this just a war between those two entities or is there something else at play? Well, uh, today's conflicts are never between A and B. Uh, <laughs> okay, <yeah. laughs> good point. Uh, uh, <laughs> uh, uh, I think uh, because we live in a globalized uh, world uh, where both uh, the means for making war mm. uh, and 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 the finance to mm. to run it uh, and the skills and knowledge are uh, widespread and they are exported and, imp and imported. And you'll find in every conflict around the world, there are stakeholders. And in this case, of course, uh, we are, we've got uh, a lot of stakeholders. We have uh, uh, basically the, uh, uh, the, the Western powers uh, who are by and large pro-Israel. Uh, and then we have the Arab states who uh, have an ambivalent, ambivalent relationship to Palestine. They're not all pro-Palestine, as sometimes you automatically uh, imagine they are. But nevertheless, they're sympathetic uh, to it for reasons that are not necessarily benign reasons. Mm. Uh, we can come back to that. And, so, and then, of course, there are third parties who are always willing to make mischief uh, and uh, spread uh, uh, confusion and chaos elsewhere. So, but then you know you have to ask yourself: uh, um, um, uh, uh, Why are people so stupid as to allow themselves to be manipulated that way? It only uh, it must be because it benefits them, or because they are desperate. So I think all the factors, all those factors, are there to play. And let's not forget the diaspora. I mean, what strikes me in the current conflict is uh, that it's not just being fought in uh, Gaza or. Mm. Uh, or between between Israeli uh, troops and Israeli uh, air, uh, air aeroplanes, uh, but it's being fought between the diasporas or on social media, on street demonstrations, and so on. And you see that uh, uh, every day. I was just watching on 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 television this evening. Uh, you know the big demonstrations in uh, London, in uh, Berlin, mm. in Paris, and uh, then uh, last week when I was in uh, Istanbul. It was going on in uh, there also. So, and that's the face of modern war as well. All the warriors of this war are not just at the front lines. Mm -hmm. uh, they are basically behind computer screens and uh, they are firing off their uh, uh, their uh, disinformation and other people waging war, which uh, means that it's a very simplistic picture to say that the wars are, and this war is being fought between combatants. It's basically being fought by two camps, 
uh, or maybe more than two camps, mm. and and uh, and they are spread globally. And I think that is uh, uh, well, well said. And that, you know, you could argue, for example, well, why does the WHO not uh, grow some balls and some teeth and goes in there and sorts things out? Uh, for all those factors that you have just mentioned, it's not so easy. It is, uh, there is so much more going on. And therefore, it well, is kind uh, of... Uh, yeah, well, I think coming to that, just sorry to interrupt you, they... It's uh, uh, not so much WHO. You mean the United Nations? Sorry, uh, yes, yes, yes. Not, correct. Yeah, yeah. We'll come back to WHO and the humanitarian side in a minute. They, the issue is this: the UN has got this dual role, the UN system, meaning the Secretary General and yeah. the, the big uh, panoply of uh, of its agencies and programs. It's got a dual role. One role is, is the guardian of international norms and principles, the UN Charter, you know, which uh, 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 tells you how nations are supposed to behave and how nations are supposed to behave towards each other and how they're supposed to behave in relation to their uh, social contract, their own citizens, you know, human rights, decency, mm -hmm. and all freedoms of the of, uh, of the UN Charter and the Human Rights Declaration uh, as well, and so many other subsidiary uh, norms that follow from that. So it's a keeper of those norms and he's supposed to stand up for them. Mm. At the same time, when uh, you have a highly conflicted situation like the one we're facing now, or, and we've faced previous rounds of this particular uh, crisis uh, many times over in the last uh, um, 70 odd years, the, the UN is supposed to be neutral because uh, the UN is neutral in the sense that it's supposed to be impartial, mm. but not because uh, not because uh, both sides are equally right or wrong. It, impartiality does not mean that both sides have an equally right or wrong case. Mm. But impartiality is simply an attribute that allows the mediator to use their good offices to to negotiate between two conflicting parties mm. and uh, have the confidence of both conflicting parties uh, mm. to come to an accommodation. And if you look at the history of past uh, UN uh, secretary generals, um, a long line uh, uh, going back uh, since its foundation in the 1940s, you see that in the past, you had uh, when there were wars and conflicts all over the world, the world turned to the UN Secretary General mm. to go help uh, uh, knock heads together, uh, say mm. words to each side, sometimes mm. in always in private, but generally to uh, win their trust and confidence, which he mm. had by virtue of the position he occupied, and uh, then uh, uh, his his moral he I say he because it's all been men so far mm. his moral authority. Uh, would uh, uh, shame the warring parties together to uh, come together. And we've seen this in many conflicts in the past, in the good old days. Uh, but today, uh, we have the units under pressure. On one hand, it's told to stand up and say and condemn things when bad things happen, the war on Ukraine mm. or uh, uh, killing of civilians in Gaza. Mm. And uh, this Secretary General, Antonio Guterres, 
who is not known as a as a man who uh, who kind of takes a position on many things, um, uh, except he started doing that uh, in his second uh, once it won his second term in office, and he, he therefore didn't have to be worry about uh, uh, getting votes for his re-election. Then he became suddenly very uh, outspoken. Uh, and uh, and his remarks at the Security Council uh, meeting recently, where he spoke uh, that uh, what was happening in uh, Gaza uh, wasn't happening in a vacuum. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and uh, this was uh, misunderstood by people. Uh, in my opinion, uh, justifiably misunderstood by people, justifiably misunderstood by people to imply that he's excusing the Hamas bombing. He wasn't, mm. he wasn't meaning to do that, mm-hmm. but his speechwriter who wrote those particular words was either an idiot or was completely tone deaf on, on the case, because that's what it appears. So you would have thought that the UN Secretary General would be calling call down and uh, keep his own counsels while he try and find an accommodation and, and a peaceful settlement. But instead, by him uh, grandstanding in front of the world's uh, media, uh, and uh, and uh, condemning, condemning not just what was going on in terms of the suffering of civilians, that's yes. perfectly fine. But to do that implying uh, uh, taking sides, even though I don't think he meant to, but that was the, the uh, ham-handed way in which he spoke, it immediately meant a number of things. Yeah. It, it neutralized and marginalized the UN, and it means that the UN humanitarian side has also been marginalized. Uh, and secondly, it has meant that uh, uh, no, one expecting, no one is expecting the UN to actually have any political role in this thing. You see uh, Anthony Blinken uh, going down, this is a second visit, and you have seen the US president come down and he doesn't travel very often to, do, to, uh, to such things uh, uh, you know, at first call. And you have, you've seen foreign ministers and prime ministers and the French mm-hmm. president. Everyone, everyone's been down to the mi- Middle East and they're still coming, right? And all the Arab states and so on and so mm-hmm. forth. It's not even, even mentioned in all this. So this. So the UN, which was formed in the aftermath of the uh, Second World War with all the troubles that you know about um, uh, and the Holocaust, <laughs> incidentally, which... Uh, led to the creation of uh, Israel, amongst other things, um, is now completely being marginalized in this process. And I, I think that's a very bad idea. So we're so the peace is then dependent on uh, polarized member states. And, uh, uh, and you can imagine that uh, the polarized views of member states from the different perspectives are going to be very, very difficult to accommodate. So in the end, I think peace will come not by a compromise being reached uh, in, on principles, but it'll be it'll come by whoever has the upper hand mm. when this finishes, and then perhaps wiser people will come in mm. and try to uh, build on that to see if we can have peace. You know, one of the lessons of history that I've learned in 30, 40 years of going to war zones: all wars only end when one side or other has won. Uh, and when, um, or they've come to a complete uh, standstill, meaning they're both lost, mm. right? Usually what happens, what usually used to happen historically was somebody won and somebody lo- lost, 
And then if the winner was wise, they kind of uh, treated the loser with magnanimity and uh, and uh, you kind of, uh, you didn't rub the nose in it and you kind of made friends again, kissed mm. and made up, yep. went on. Yep. But as, as the years have gone, more and more wars are not necessarily ending in victory and loss, but victory and, uh, and uh, uh, defeat. They're ending in uh, stalemate. Mm. But even in the stalemate, one side is usually the more superior side in this. Mm. And then that means that you never have a complete peace, if you wish, you see. And that's mm. why you see many, many wars and conflicts around the world. They will go up, they will fire up mm. and uh, dampen down and they will then uh, rise again and they'll come down again with environmental factors acting on them uh, according to whichever tr is triggering them. So this explains, I think, partly why the situation in the Middle East is in such a chronic repetitive cycle of mm. violence, calm down, violence and, and, and calm down, apart from the stupidity mm. of uh, some of the leaderships that have been involved in different stages mm. from the last um, um, several decades. So far, we have we have looked at the the conflicts uh, or the Middle East really in in secular terms. Um, having said that, I got the the feeling that we are seeing again a far more religious undercurrent being in injected, being infiltrated, um, therefore making it so much harder when it comes uh, not just. Uh, uh, to the point of one uh, side winning, but actually really with the aim of uh, some Arab voices saying they want to eradicate Israel once and for all and get rid of the Jews. Um, is that just something that, that maybe has been picked up and maybe falsely blown out of proportion? Or have you seen that in your own experience as well? Well, I think um, uh, certainly as far as Hezbollah and Hamas are concerned, mm. they have a, uh, what we can only call a genocidal approach. Uh, uh, you know, the definition of a genocide is uh, the uh, is uh, the intent uh, and often an attempted practice to try and eradicate a group of people on account of their identity. Uh, and that identity, uh, uh, maybe a social identity, a cultural identity, and very definitely a religious identity, and often it's uh, mixed up. And this is, of course, what happened in the in the in the Holocaust, right? Now, uh, it's it's well known that the ideology of Hamas, Hezbollah, and their uh, supporters is uh, the eradication of uh, uh, of uh, Israel, and uh, because uh, Israel is majority. Jewish, that means the eradication of the Jewish people. And eradication in this context doesn't necessarily mean that every single Jew has to be killed, which is what, it, what the Germans tried, what the Nazis tried um, uh, in those days. But, uh, the, the, uh, but the, uh, to get them out of the way, and today genocides are committed, as we know from Cambodia, as you know from Rwanda, as we know uh, from Darfur and all of which I've been involved in, and also in Tigray region of, of uh, Ethiopia or with the Yazidis in Iraq, the idea is to eradicate a culture as much as to destroy 
the human beings hmm. because the idea is more important than the human being. Uh, people regenerate, but once an idea is dead, it's dead. So the ideology of uh, of the of uh, these uh, uh, fundamentalists, uh, Hamas and Hezbollah, mm -hmm. is very definitely uh, genocidal in mindset. Now they will justify that on the grounds of their historic uh, uh, grievances and all the rest mm -hmm. of it, but I think it's more than that. Mm -hmm. Now uh, coming from the other side, uh, there are a number of people claiming that what Israel is doing in Gaza with its uh, extremely uh, destructive, uh, uh, no-holds-bar uh, uh, warfare, um, uh, heavy, heavy bombing, uh, you know, literally block by block and uh, no quarters uh, spared, yeah. uh, that approach, so it's claimed, so it's claimed, um, is also genocidal. Well, I don't think it is. I think many people are saying that Israel is committing genocide. I think they're misusing the word genocide mm -hmm. because I've I not agree. heard Israel say that it wants to eliminate uh, uh, the Palestinian people. Mm. Uh, it says it wants to eliminate the military structure and the political structure of uh, of Hamas, uh, but that is not the same thing as uh, as eliminating the Palestinian uh, 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 people. So, um, but of course, you see, uh, the word genocide has come to mean, uh, well, it's a very emotional term, and it's come to have a popular meaning, mm. which is, so you see this, I was seeing the banners in, this, uh, in these demonstrations I saw on TV, uh, you know, uh, Israel, uh, Israel committing genocide, et cetera, et cetera, you see. And this just reflects the, both the uh, misinformation as well as the disinformation that is going around 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 the place. But to be honest, uh, you know, we know people are suffering. We know thousands have been killed in in Gaza. We know that uh, nearly everyone is displaced in Gaza, close, close on to two million people. Mm. It's moot comfort to anybody, whether in Israel or in uh, uh, Gaza, uh, to uh, figure out whether if they're killed or if they are. Uh, um, displaced, whether it's due to genocide mm. or due to lesser uh, uh, crime. Absolutely. It is uh, in a fairly academic and uh, mm. uh, legal viewpoint, uh, which is not practically very useful mm. for uh, well-being and survival of people on the ground of either side. Well, you're, you're so right. You're so right. There are so many factors uh uh, influencing what we hear as consumers or as humans outside of the Middle East. Um, it's always um, so difficult to look at media and first figure out, is it true what I've been told? And then the second question is, why am I being told that particular piece of information. So there is very much a warfare going on, as you have alluded to, um, in the in the media as well. And unfortunately, that is, yeah, the the, the bigger the 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 gore, the, the the you know, if it bleeds, it leads. That was always the the factor uh, for selling news and that has not changed so it's very very hard really for people to make up their mind and i have to uh, to to make none to get informed properly and therefore have a balanced uh point of view um the other thing to say is that 
the the education of our children has gone down the drain big time certainly when it comes to history and certainly when it comes to to getting to know the real history not just what is written somewhere in a, in a bloody textbook but and therefore you you have got nowadays a situation that is a world that is dominated by social media um and by by misinformation disinformation as you have alluded to and some very shadowy players hell how can we possibly make this world a better place if there's so much so much going on that is actually working against our attempts to improve the world how why have you not given up in your work why have you not said you know what i become a gardener this is all so hopeless and helpless um you know is there hope well apart from the fact that i'm a hopeless gardener and uh, <laughs> anything, <laughs> anything i touch is shrivels away um, <laughs> But it's a serious question you ask. Uh, I think uh, uh, it's because, you know, uh, people like you and I who inhabit uh, comfortable uh, spaces and who have the luxury of opting in and out of uh, people's misfortunes and suffering, as and partly in a voyeuristic manner. And even if uh, you are an actor, as I have been in my uh, field career, uh, I could uh, always go home. Mm, exactly. So I, it was optional. And uh, let me answer by just sharing with you uh, an, uh, an anecdote, really, about uh, someone I met, not in this context, but in uh, another place in Sudan, when I was uh, doing some work there in terms of drawing attention to atrocities going on in the Nubo Mountains, the border between Sudan and South Sudan. Mm. And when I interviewed this uh, uh, this lady, um, uh, and uh, she said, uh, and I said, cameras with me, and uh, she said, uh, uh, tell your cameraman to come closer and take my photo and uh, tell the world, and you, I know you will, uh, uh, thanks for coming, you are here, but I know you'll be gone this afternoon, and we are, we're still going to be here. But I want you to do something for me. Uh, 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 I've been raped. I've been raped many times. And uh, I'm not ashamed. I want you to tell people my name, show them my face, and tell them my story. Because my greatest fear is she said that I am born here, I'm raped here, I'm abused here, tortured here, and I will die here, and nobody will know. So what is the point of me being, being here? Wow. That taught me a number of things. Uh, one was that uh, those of us who live in safe spaces, uh, thousands of miles away, have the luxury of feeling sympathetic and compassionate. And then uh, we can uh, have the luxury also at the same time of feeling depressed. What when you are at the front line, when you are the, if you like, the survivor or the victim in these cases, you don't have the luxury of feeling anything other than uh, uh, 
courageous and strong and uh, in order to survive. Mm. So that uh, really made me think that if this lady uh, was uh, facing the future uh, with a degree of rebelliousness and uh, fortitude, then I had uh, no right to feel pessimistic uh, uh, because, uh, you know, how could I be? So in a way, that really has equipped me to be yeah. uh, to always remain optimistic. Optimistic doesn't mean being naive or upbeat, but simply saying that uh, if these people don't give up, it doesn't matter where they are, whether they're in Gaza or Israel or Ukraine yeah. or yeah. Sudan, or, if they're not giving up, what right have I to give up? <laughs> so, oh, what so a beautiful... That's why, that's why I keep going. That's why I keep on raising my voice. That's why I keep on ranting and raving if uh, that's what I have to, do, have to do and try to convince or argue or whatever it is I have to do. Wow. That is the most beautiful statement I could imagine. Because it is so easy to give up, but if we have got a moral duty to speak out. And if, because that is often the only thing that we can do in the face of adversity, um, especially in, in such a multifactorial uh, craziness, uh, such as the Middle East, but also uh, Ukraine and, and many other other conflicts and, and, and disaster situations. Um, you might not be able to influence something, but you have got the choice and the, and the privilege to speak out, raise awareness, and be there as a, I guess, a witness and someone who speaks out. I think that we we saw it in 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 Germany. There was uh, in in with the Nazis. We we um, that was a nice saying. First they came for the communists, and I didn't say anything because I'm not a communist. Um, then they came for the etc. And he goes through a number of groups, and when he finally came to him, um, there was no one left to speak out, and. That is something that we that it is our duty. That's that's why I uh, I approached you so much to actually uh, come onto my show that we too can have this discussion and maybe just open the eyes of of some of our viewers who might have not had the insight into the into the Middle East, maybe the way that you have experienced it over the decades now. And you were quite right earlier on saying I was I was of course uh, referring to the UN as the kind of world police maybe to to actually go in there and we discuss that, and we already said it's not so easy. So uh, the police will not come anytime soon. But I mean now we are we are left with two million people displaced. I mean we are talking about ten thousand people thereabouts dead now. A factor of 10, 20 would be the injured people um, that we are seeing there. That is a humanitarian catastrophe. Um, what can the world do? What is the role of the WHO? What is the role of other humanitarian um, institutions? I mean, you have been there on the on the cold phase. What, what is there anything that can be done right now? When will people get access again to 
to yeah. the the wounded and and displaced. Well, first to say that this war has been going on for about uh, three weeks, a month, mm. um, and uh, uh, what's remarkable is how much the humanitarian agencies that have been present on the ground have been doing. Because remember, no aid has been getting through until very recently, and now only a trickle. So uh, the UN agencies, WHO, UNICEF, and uh, the Red Cross, Red Crescent System, um, uh, Mesa Sans Frontier, and many other humanitarian organizations have been eking out their resources that are, were available there in Gaza mm -hmm. and patching people up uh, in the hospitals, uh, um, uh, supplying food uh, uh, and uh, wherever there was food, uh, water, and uh, providing shelter in the different uh, uh, schools which UNRWA mm -hmm. was running, it's running. So I think it's remarkable how much uh, humanitarians have been doing. And by the way, don't forget, that uh, most of the humanitarian agencies of the UN and the Red Cross systems we're talking about, most of the staff are locals. So we're not here talking about hordes of foreigners going in. Most of the help being provided has been by the local staff of these very organizations. Mm. So these humanitarian uh, workers have been uh, uh, carrying the same risks, risks as the uh, host population. And in fact, uh, scores of them have also died in the in the line of duty. Um, uh, mm -hmm. That's the first thing to say. The second thing to say is that uh, uh, here I am uh, uh, going to say something slightly controversial, and that is, uh, uh, ten thousand people have died, considering the extent of damage and destruction, devastation. Now, it, I won't want more to die, or I won't want to say that 10,000 is, is, is too little or too many. But the fact is, if you just think about it, with all the, with the bombings that are going on and the total destruction of the system, uh, it's a miracle that more are, have not been killed. And that actually points to two things. One, despite all the uh, all the um, uh, kind of uh, hysteria that is going on in terms of uh, war crimes and uh, you know indiscriminate uh, violence, mm. uh, actually, um, if really if it really was in completely indiscriminate, we'd have many more people dead at this time. And maybe there are. I mean, the other thing is the statistics. Uh, how how who's counting exactly. and who is to and I'm sure the 10,000 is an mm. underestimate. Mm. So you realize it's a little bit of a complex situation there. Mm. And I think that just a quick note here. I mean, first of all, if you level a complete apartment block, there will be many bodies that will not be re uh, recovered. And it is such a densely populated uh, area for crying out loud, the, whilst 
traditionally the statistics coming uh, from uh, the PLO and, and from from Lebanon were actually not too inflated. They were uh, they were deemed quite realistic assessments in such a conflict. My goodness, I mean, who knows what the real number is? It is likely much higher. Um, that's that's that needs to be said here. Having and then the on the counter side is there's resil, resil, resilience of the people. Yeah. Because remember, these people have got PhDs in survival. They have been through previous uh, cycles of, of yeah, violence. That's true. And I'm afraid that has equipped them to uh, find ways of coping and surviving. This is not to glorify anything, but simply to say, and that's why uh, uh, somebody asked me the other day whether I believed in miracles. Uh, and it wasn't a religious question, though it could be interpreted in a religious way. But I said, well, uh, I think anytime anybody survives and uh, a new baby is born in the rubble, which in fact has been happening, even twins have been born in the rubble, it's a miracle. So uh, let's not uh, forget that. But coming back to your question about what can we do uh, uh, on this. Well, um, I'm not sure that ceasefires are the answer. You see, now that the war has started, for better or for worse, you don't want to go down the route of a half won, half lost war. Mm -hmm. It just prolongs uh, the, the, the agony. And we've seen that in many, many other situations mm -hmm. where, for example, uh, I'm just thinking now of uh, Bosnia, where uh, uh, you know, there was this terrible conflict in the former Yugoslavia. And uh, after huge international uh, pressure, um, uh, it, it was uh, frozen through international initiatives, mm. and it remains frozen to this day. Mm. So, okay, so we may not have hot violence going on, but we don't have a solution to the conflict. And, mm. uh, and this has been now 20 odd years uh, mm. later. So I think the best of all wars is a fast, furious, and brief war. So uh, this is not, uh, I, I don't mm. want to misunderstood here to say that mm. uh, I am an advocate of a relentless, con re re relentless uh, um, uh, war. Uh, but uh, I think uh, uh, what Israel mm. is doing is, is uh, the strategy of go going in fast and furious and trying to get this over and done with as mm. fast as possible is in the long run uh, uh, the more human humanitarian strategy, even though uh, critics would round on me and say, hang on, what are you talking here about? Look at the suffering, mm. look at the displacement. I, I get it, I get it. This is a dilemma. There is no good way of fighting an urban war. Mm. Exactly. The best of all bad ways of fighting a war is for it to be intense and short. Mm. Not That's why I'm against ceasefires. I uh, and uh, I am, however, in favor of these humanitarian pauses that's, mm. that that uh, some leaders have called for, and those humanitarian pauses will last for uh, hours at a time. Gives you enough time to get the injured out, uh, mm. aid in, and to mitigate some of the of of, of the suffering. 
And, uh, uh, and it can't be more than a few hours at a time because otherwise I think this would be, give the, the, the fighters time to rest and then prepare for the next round, which exactly. I have also seen in, in, uh, in conflicts uh, elsewhere. So, uh, you know, uh, this is one of the problems of humanitarians uh, and uh, they're a blind spot. Uh, and uh, people are disappointed when I speak like this because they think, as a humanitarian, I should be advocating for uh, kind of uh, uh, laying down your arms, having a ceasefire, and uh, and and uh, uh, kind of uh, you know go back to um, uh, helping people. Well, I think to help the suffering people, uh, I think it's better to get get on with this war and finish it as fast as possible to eliminate Hamas. Mm. And uh, then to give proper uh, aid to people um, mm. and uh, think of the future. Meanwhile, I think uh, uh, Israel should uh, uh, provide these breathing spaces at least enough so that some of the innocent civilians and most of the people in Gaza are innocent civilians mm. uh, get some relief and are evacuated. Speaking of which, you know, I don't see many nations. Uh, everybody is worried about displacement in Gaza, but I don't see any nation, especially not the uh, Arab nations, uh, opening the doors to let the Gazans in. Uh, <laughs> exactly. You could argue, why the hell is Egypt not opening up its uh, its border? Um, exactly. <laughs> on the ground, what they're saying is that on the ground, that if they do that, this would be this would be a tantamount to helping Israel to uh, do ethnic cleansing, i.e., remove all the Gazans, and then and they will never go back. And then you will have a mini Gaza uh, re-established in the in the Sinai, and then it's a repeat of the Nakba in 1948. Mm -hmm. So that's their argument, if you like. But uh, but we also know that uh, the the Hamas, which is derived from the Muslim Brotherhood. Um, and uh, they caused uh, havoc in Egypt and had to be outlawed. Mm. And uh, uh, Gulf states, uh, they are not keen on having uh, too many Palestinians uh, amidst themselves because of the threat to their security. In the same way that it has brought insecurity to Israel, it, it has also brought insecurity to other countries. Mm. And I'm just sorry for Palestinians because obviously it's not the fault of millions of Palestinians. Most Palestinians are uh, perfectly ordinary uh, people like I hope you and I. But the fact is that their particular situation uh, has led them into a, into a, a particularly complex positioning vis-a-vis -vis their neighborhoods, mm. uh, uh, which makes them unwanted in many, many places around the world. Mm. And it just reminds me of, of the Jews of Europe of, oh. in history. Because you are just, oh my God, as if you could read my mind. I was about to say to draw this parallel because, you know, this, uh, the, the European nations and the United States, what did they take? You know, half a dozen here, half a dozen there Jews at a time when it was absolutely blatantly obvious that the genocide was occurring. So you're so, so right. This is, this is not something new, is it? So these two... Uh, Semite people, both the Jews and the um, Palestinians of uh, the Arabs, they are uh, in this kind of uh, mutual dance, uh, or they're the two sides of the same coin. 
in terms of the historical experiences, if you go back uh, 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 far enough. And that, I think, is the eternal tragedy of this place. Now, everybody uh, talks about two-state solutions as uh, because that's what the General Assembly agreed uh, um, uh, eons ago. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and as time has gone, the two-state solution has uh, not been put into practice for different reasons. Uh, Israel has nibbled away at uh, what would have been Palestine. And uh, uh, and, uh, and meanwhile, the Palestinians bear grudges and uh, Israel has its security uh, security issues. I mean, the ideal solution, but I don't know why nobody talks about this so much, is why not return to uh, the old historic Palestine, much bigger Palestine, hmm. uh, within the current boundaries of what is Israel, uh, you know, where it's a unitary state where both the Jews and the Arabs live together uh, as one state solution. Now, of course, it's ideal, and you and, uh, and it's not going to happen. People are go- going to say, but the, the two-state solution is also a form of apartheid. I mean, people accuse Israel of uh, being a colonialist uh, apartheid state, mm. and there is some reason to uh, to think like that. Uh, at, at least on prima facie uh, grounds in the way they treat uh, Palestinians in the West Bank and even in Gaza, and obviously the walls they have be- built uh, and to keep uh, people and their settlements apart is a form of apartheid. Well, a two-state solution is also apartheid because these will be two, two different peoples. Uh, uh, of course, they've got they're the same blood, uh, but dwelling next to each other, let's mm. see geography of that looks like, if that's not clear. And uh, if that isn't a form of apartheid, I don't know what it is. Now in South Africa, they tried apartheid. You had black groups here and there. Uh, you know, you had this uh, homeland uh, for the blacks around South Africa. Mm. And in the end, they fell apart. And today you have a South Africa where blacks and whites live together. Mm. They rub along and they grumble and fight and quarrel and so on and so forth, but we, and this is going to go on for some time, but we have one South Africa, and by and large, the rainbow nation of South Africa has done well since apartheid broke uh, broke down. But I do not think that the formulas being being offered nowadays, whether formula of, of a two-state solution, or some are even now saying three-state solutions, Gaza its own state, mm. uh, uh, after the war ends, uh, are necessarily going to bring us uh, peace ahead. But then uh, I think uh, it's going to need some really special leadership on all sides to come uh, to whatever the answer is going to be in in the years to come. Wow. Very well said. I, it's, it's so hard to come up with a uh, solution or even a way forward um, uh, the only thing that we really can hope for is ultimately, I like what you said, um, a very fierce, short conflict so that 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 the conflict and the fighting can be put aside and humanitarian aid can get back in and actually the sides, whatever sides are left, can come to the table and actually agree on at least meeting again and uh, stepping forward rather than than um than fighting having said that bloody hell uh now that let's let's say israel is successful um however you define success here um that hamas is somehow obliterated is there not then a vacuum is that not then something that 
that we have seen in Iraq, where suddenly you wipe out all the bad boys and, and take them away. And then suddenly there are more bad boys left, which then turn into ISIS um, because they, the, the whole Ba'ath Party has been uh, or dis dissolved. What will think, happen? Uh, no, no, no. Yes and no. In that uh, uh, nature abhors a vacuum, we know that. And then, uh, uh, but what happened in the case of Iraq was that uh, uh, the war was won very quickly against Saddam mm -hmm. Hussein, uh, uh, remarkably quickly. So you would expect with the world superpowers against uh, that uh, country, that uh, regime. But the immediate aftermath was extremely badly handled. Exactly. So in other words, uh, America in particular is to blame for this because uh, they didn't want the mission creep of uh, mm. trying to pick pieces. And, uh, in, and picking up the pieces goes with the job. So if you're going to break it, you're supposed to put it together again. <laughs> which they not did very well, did they? No. <laughs> which, which, which one they were not reluctant to do. And when they did, it was half-hearted. Now, I can imagine a different context. One uh, in Gaza, it's a much smaller place, um, much fewer people. And uh, even if it's obliter obliterated, and this is a horrible thing to say, I mean, in, term in physical terms, uh, and, uh, you know, a couple of million people hopefully have to live, etc. But I can see some kind of international authority uh, which uh, the world contributes to, mm. uh, not led by the United States or uh, any of the people supporting, uh, uh, providing weaponry to Israel, because I don't think they would have the confidence, they would have the confidence of the population. But mm. certainly led by the UN, it certainly it could be the uh, Arab states, it could be third parties, mm. uh, a, a technical authority, if you like, mm. you see, mm. a political authority that uh, begins a process of clearing the rubble uh, and uh, trying to find uh, some kind of hmm. basic life for people there hmm. uh, to get over their immediate trauma, hmm. to rebuild their strength as much as you can and uh, find a breather so hmm. that they can decide what they wish to do in the future. Now, what the future is, it'll have to be decided by the 2 million people uh, and uh, it will require some kind of popular process to do that, making sure that uh, some things are off the cards. That is, no extremists can uh, uh, occupy any leadership uh, position. So I can, I mean, I remember being in East Timor. Uh, you know, the Indonesians did terrible things in their uh, province of East uh, Timor, mm -hmm. and uh, terrible things, terrible yep. things indeed. And then the, there was a UN administration that was. Uh, installed and yeah. the UN administration when I was there uh, job was basically the restoration of public services you know water food electricity mm -hmm. uh, shelter um, and so on to give the East Timorese just enough space of uh, four or five years I think uh, 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 so that they could decide uh, what they want to, uh, to do mm -hmm. and uh, now they're running their country in in the usual imperfect way in which we run our countries wherever we are <laughs> in, the, in the world. Yeah. So it's, it's possible to do that. Whether okay. that Gaza Strip is part of a, of a independent Palestine or whether it is 
some kind of a self-contained uh, uh, territory. Time will tell. But mm. uh, personally, uh, I think uh, it's not too difficult to envisage some mm. kind of international authority that uh, cleans up the act mm. and provides breathing space and runs it in as a pure in pure public administration terms, not in political uh, political terms, mm. but simply to provide uh, services and allow Palestinians Gazans to uh, come up again. Where should the money come from? Because, so I mean... <laughs> it would have to be the international uh, community. Because if you take the view that uh, it is uh, the collective mismanagement of the international community over the last few years that broke the place, uh, I mean, you can argue whether it's yeah. uh, America's fault less and that mm. person's fault more, or whether it's Iran's fault. or the, mm. You can argue. But when it's all said and done, it... The, to restore uh, some type of uh, humanity mm. uh, to Gaza is a public good. We know that uh, mm. that an in, that an unstable, unsecure, insecure Gaza is uh, going to spawn wider insecurity for the region mm. and for for the for the world. So it's a collective good. We'll pay for it. Mm. Uh, you'll pay for it through your taxpayer via the New Zealand government's contribution to the uh, to the mm. to the UN. Mm. Um, and uh, uh, I think it's not that uh, it's going to be costly. But uh, don't forget, the Palestinians are entrepreneurial people. Mm. They, well, you know where you are. Uh, even now in the ruins, they're operating their small shops and businesses. Yeah. No, you're quite right. You're quite right. Um, wow. Actually, you have had, you've you've given me so much beautiful information, and you have reframed some of the very complex issues in my that that, that we are seeing there. Uh, in my mind, there is now actually after our interview far more hope for the place, and I see actually now a future. And I think that is that is where such wise leadership as as your voice um, could uh, could do so much more. So we need to. <laughs> I love it that you speak out. Um, there, however, there's so many voices out there. Sometimes common sense and good voices get get droned out or, or pushed aside. There's too much other noise um, coming through. And do you see well, a part of the thing? By the way. Is change in Israel also? I mm. think uh, I, I, I don't know um, uh, how the Israeli leadership is going to take this, but you know, uh, Israeli leadership in the last uh, year or two or bit has been very conflicted, Correct. and uh, and uh, and so have the Israeli uh, people. But I do know that there are many, many extremely sensible and concerned Israeli people, and. Uh, uh, they have to seize uh, their own uh, governance with both hands and say, hey, uh, mm. uh, uh, return to the status quo uh, mm. ante is not an option. Because mm. They're not going to take us, take us forward. So I think it has to be some give and take on that side. Mm. Uh, and that also means that the uh, Israeli diaspora abroad uh, has to play a constructive role in this. 
uh, as also has got to play the Palestinian uh, diaspora. And mm. they are not necessarily, they should not necessarily be in competition with the, each other in a, in a tribalistic way. I mean, this is not a, this is not a, a, a football match. Uh, I mean, I use that example because recently I was reading the news story that the football club, that the Israeli, the, the Jewish football club of Leeds refused to play the Arab football club of Leeds University. I mean, can you, can you get so idiotic, more idiotic than that? And that's, the, that's what I mean, that the role of the diaspora and the public and the pressure it gives is, uh, uh, can be, is actually quite malign in this. Yeah. And this is why, uh, this is why I argued in a paper I wrote uh, recently that uh, the Geneva Conventions, which everyone thinks applies to soldiers on the ground and civilians on the ground, absolutely, they should. But in my view, uh, those who egg on, uh, uh, egg on, uh, 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 you know, uh, uh, violence, or who take hateful positions yeah. in relation to some uh, dispute, why should they be protected uh, uh, and uh, uh, when there are as much warriors in today's uh, digital warfare than uh, the soldiers. At least the soldiers on the ground uh, are fighting with their bodies. But yeah. those who sit behind computers sending uh, tweets in a uh, in an unconstructive manner or in yeah. or destructive manner, or they fire, or in as an example I gave was in uh, apartment blocks in Ukraine, uh, uh, directing drones, uh, you know, then don't be surprised if somebody bombs your apartment block if the drone driver <laughs> on, on the fifth floor of an apartment block from which the armed drones are being directed elsewhere. So th this is a other problem. In today's conflicts, we, are, we have all become warriors. Who's a civilian and who is not a, who is a, who is a fighter? Yeah. Those lines have become blurred. Oh. And things that when you are in a faraway place, and uh, you're not actually fighting on the ground with a gun in your hand, but you're fighting with your ideas, with your voice, yeah. or with your opinions on whichever side, then uh, I think you're involved. And if you're involved, then you are fair game in, in, in that warfare. Uh, mm. uh, uh, that means, well, I, the logic of that takes you into horrible territory. And, mm. and, uh, I'd rather not uh, think about that, especially now with artificial intelligence and other technologies that 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 are coming in, which which means that, which means that our old uh, Geneva Conventions or uh, the way we framed the conduct of wars, uh, they are uh, the rules of war. They are heavily they are being heavily stretched at the present at the present. <laughs> well. I have not looked at it from that angle, but these are very wise words. These are very, very true words. Wow. Um, but then again, it is it it points to our own duty to speak out, to confront extremism and hate speech wherever we face it, and maybe model a different way of of behaving. 
Um, and we can all therefore uh, become actors, so to speak, in that game or in that lethal game, shall I say, uh, that uh, we have a role to play. Therefore, we're actually not powerless to sit on the sidelines and think, oh, my God, the world is going going belly up and I can't do anything. Yes, you can. Yes, you have got a role to play by countering the hateful voices out there and by speaking out and by modeling a good behavior, a different behavior that maybe is is more humane and more fitting for a human uh, than actually the, the hateful stuff that we see out there happening. Well, I think uh, uh, that is absolutely true. And the corollary of that is that in today's globalized contexts, where we are interdependent in little and large ways, there is no space for neutrality. As someone uh, said, that uh, you know, if you're in, in, the, in a highway and you are in the middle of the highway, you'll get squashed by cars coming from both sides. You know, if you just stand in the middle, stand in the middle. And I think it was either it was Mahatma Gandhi or. Uh, or uh, Martin Luther King, I can't remember, who uh, said something like, there is a special place in hell for the neutral, when neutral people are confronted <laughs> by all the wrongs that are going on in the world. So, so I think everyone in the world has to take sides. Yeah. And the only thing we can, we hope is that it's a moral side. Yeah. And it's a side that uh, uh, is, uh, that defends the bigger principles. So if you're going to take a pro-Israel side or a pro-Palestinian side, that's fine. But if you take a pro-Israeli side, it should not be an anti-Palestinian side, if you see what I'm trying to say, mm -hmm. or the other way, other, other way around, you see. Taking mm -hmm. sides uh, on grounds of principles of humanity and justice, yeah. which go together, is uh, not the same thing as being partisan. In fact, you have to take sides because if you don't take sides, then uh, all you're doing is uh, is uh, perpetuating a world in which inhumanity, unfairness, and injustice are going to are going to prevail. Mm. So I see uh, these struggles that are going on as very important for evolution, for our evolution as human beings, in a way. So you know. There are rebellions mm. going on everywhere. There are people standing up in arms. There are people doing coups and counter coups. There are uh, people uh, uh, raging everywhere for whatever cause they believe in, etc. And I look upon all that and, and I look at it and say, hey, uh, that, that, that ferment of humanity, even though some of them are extremely evil or, or uh, misinformed, but it's my opinion, um, and others will have their own opinion, but that is an important part of an evolution towards something. Yeah. And okay. uh, so uh, this is not an argument for perpetual revolution or uh, have deliberate <laughs> revolution in order to uh, mm. have something emerge from it. But what I'm seeing is that the fact that uh, we have conflicts in many countries in the world, we have people um, blocking roads because of climate change, because mm. governments are not doing enough uh, for it, or somebody else uh, agitating because uh, 
um, uh, you know, they're not getting their COVID vaccination uh, yeah. against, uh, you know, all these disputes that are taking place all over the world on all sorts of topics. They have forms of conflict, it's not necessarily always armed conflict, hopefully, or not always mm. armed uh, conflict. Mm. But they are part of a, a growing, uh, the only place where you maybe don't have such conflicts openly is probably totalitarian regimes like Eritrea and mm. China. Mm. And uh, for the life of me, I don't want to live in countries uh, like mm. that. And uh, I see this, this uh, great battle that's taking place, if you like, almost like a third world war. It's mm. not a third world war of, of warfare in that sense, but it's a war for freedom. Mm. It's a war for freedoms, if you, if you wish. It's a muddled war. It's a confused mm. war. It's, it's, uh, it's uh, expressed in different ways. Some are wars of self-determination. Some are wars against marginalization. Mm. Others are wars of equal uh, treatment. Uh, uh, and uh, all sorts of things are there. Mm. Uh, ultimately, there are wars about uh, uh, forms of freedom. Mm. So in that sense, maybe this is the third world war. Uh, but, <laughs> of, of, but the nature of that war is very different. Yeah. And uh, it, probably the necessary phase we have to go through on this planet before we emerge a, a more uh, sane society. But that will be after I leave the planet, probably. Oh, you're quite right. I, I love that that more philosophical end here of our discussion. Um, it is, but then again, it, it shows that we have got the power to do something by taking a stance, by speaking out, by, uh, by behaving in a certain way. Uh, does no longer make us a victim of circumstances, but it actually, you become a survivor by actually taking action and even a thriver um, in, in the sense of post-traumatic growth and, and uh, reframing circumstances or reframing trauma that, that you have experienced and now becoming a stronger, different human being in response to that. So I think there is hope out there. I think that is the one thing that I take away from our from our discussion today. Uh, Mukesh, you're, you're an amazing man. Uh, I love to talk to you. I could talk to you for many hours. And, and I hope that we have been able to at least shine a, a, a different spotlights into the Israel-Hamas conflict as it is right now. And hope soon that that a that the whole thing is resolved one way or the other and that humanitarian aid can uh, get to those that need it and the world can get on with with oh, addressing the things that are important. Mukeshi, an amazing man. Thank you so much for being a guest on my show. Thank you. Nice mm. to talk to you. As always. And you guys out there, look after yourself. Bye. And you. Bye. Bye. I never give up. I never give up. I never give up. Turn